Good morning for our scripture today. We're going to read Acts 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of the black Bibles in front of you. On our black Bibles, it's going to be on page 923. Again, this is Acts 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city on the next day. He went with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord and in whom they had believed. When they, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken to the spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And there remained no little time with the disciples. The word of the Lord. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we are continuing our series through the book of Acts. Before we jump in, um, I want to throw you a picture, show you a picture. Let's get that picture of the, the building up. Do we have it back there? Um, the building is coming along. Um, that's our building right there, uh, at least part of it, uh, right down the street from us. And that is from Saturday morning. The uh, that's the, the floors we discovered underneath that, uh, that old carpet, um, 1920s uh, floor that had never been finished. So it got sanded. It's got its first layer of, of uh, sealant on it. Um, we are planning on being in our new building next month, um, just to kind of give you an update. Yeah, it's, uh, we're hoping that all the construction will be done and uh, right now it's scheduled to have the final inspections at the beginning of July. And then we'll move over there and, and um, mid-July we'll let you know when we're in there. Um, right now, though, I've had a lot of people approach me and ask me, hey, what can we do? What can we do? We've been working on this thing for a year. Now's the window. Um, if you want to be involved, now's the time to do it. Um, we have work parties going on. And the way you find out about them is on the city. 
Okay, that's our online communication tool. So if you're not on the city, we encourage you to stop by Connection Point. Uh, sign up. You get an email blast every day, and, and it'll just give you a summary of what's going on and opportunities that we have. So we had a group in there yesterday painting. I was very thankful for them. I walked in. They were all speckled and, and laughing and smiling, which was awesome. Um, they were painting ceilings, so there's no way not to get speckled. But um, uh, we've got some painting going on. We've got actually quite a bit of painting. That's kind of the big thing. A little bit of demolition left, but um, mainly just, just getting some paint on the walls. And, um, and so if you want to be involved, now's the time, okay, because it's, we're kind of in that crunch time of, of have some key areas where volunteers are able to help us get some stuff done. Okay, so anyway, I um, wanted to share with you the good news. It's coming up. All right, so as we get ready, let me ask you a question. Do you remember your first moment of truly tasting existential despair? Some of you are like, what? <laughs> Steve, it's way too early to talk like that. Um, all right, let me ask you this. Do you remember that moment when you realized that life makes promises that it doesn't keep? Do you remember when you had desires and hopes and you really thought they could be fulfilled and it dawned on you? But they really can't. That moment you realized that whatever that thing was you wanted, whether it was a thing or a person, an achievement, a relationship, you really thought that's the thing, that's the thing that will make me happy. And you realized that it would not. It gave pleasure, but in the end, it betrayed you. Your desire was greater than the gift, and the gift itself couldn't feed or satisfy the desire. You know, maybe it was Christmas. I think for a lot of us, that was it. It wasn't me. I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. We didn't do Christmas or or, uh, birthdays. But maybe that was, you know, maybe it was that gift. You were like looking at your parents going, hey, if you'll just get me this one thing. Will you please just get me this? I'll never ask you for anything again. You ever said that? I'll never ask you for anything again. And then they got it for you. And guess what you did? You asked for something else. You betrayed your promise. You know why? Because whatever it was that you were looking for didn't satisfy the desire that caused you to look for it. Whatever it was that you yearned for because you had this itch it couldn't scratch it, right? It gave you temporary, momentary pleasure, but it couldn't satisfy the deeper desire that was being expressed. We do this all the time, right? Now, here's the thing. It's usually something we do discover in our childhood, and it's really devastating, I think, for a lot of us when we first realize that. It's at that moment that we discover something that we all know, but collectively as a human race, we spend the rest of our lives refusing to admit. And that is that life is a cycle of anticipation, fulfillment, and disappointment. Anticipation, fulfillment, and disappointment. Because the fulfillment never lives up to the anticipation and can never last. You're like, Steve, that's really a great way to start. I'm feeling very uplifted right now. Thank you for that word of encouragement. All right, the good news is coming, but I want to unpack the bad news first, okay? And the bad news is, is that, that there really is an existential despair at the heart of the human condition, this idea that we continually think we can find fulfillment in places we can't find it. And so we just go through the same cycle all over again. We hope for this thing. We hope for this person. We hope for this accomplishment. We hope for this relationship. Then we get it. And then we're like, that isn't everything I thought it would be. It's not that there's no joy. It's not that there's no fulfillment, but it can't fully satisfy. There's a quote in your bulletin from C.S. Lewis. Um, Every pastor loves C.S. Lewis because he's so quotable. And this quote cycles through your bulletin once about every six months or so because it's so good. Um, But it says this, it says, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. Every war 
every betrayal, every disappointment, every broken relationship, every human heart traces its roots back to this. We have desires that can't be satisfied. We have itch that can't be scratched. And and we just keep trying and trying and trying, and it doesn't work. And, And so when we get disappointed, we just start anticipating something else. We just shift. We're like, okay, now this is the next thing. This is the next thing. This is the next thing. When I get here, when I get this, when I'm able to do this, when I'm here, then, then, then. And then never comes because whatever it is we're doing can never satisfy the desire. Well, here's the thing. It's because our desires are bent in the wrong direction. Our desires are bent toward things that can't satisfy And so we're continually feasting on things that can't satisfy the hunger. So today's text um, is a look at how the gospel breaks this cycle of anticipation, fulfillment, and disappointment. I'm going to tell you, it can be messy. It's going to be really hard. Um, But the gospel is the only power strong enough to actually free us from it. And that's kind of where we're going to be going this morning. First, I want to give you a summary of where we are in Paul's journey, right? We're in Acts 14, and we read about the second half of what we call Paul's first missionary journey. Okay, we started it in Acts 13. Let me just give you a summary. Um, In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas started on the journey. They set out from Antioch, uh, which is in modern-day Turkey, and they sailed to the island of Cyprus. They walked across the island of Cyprus sharing the gospel um, had some interesting conversations, sailed again to the mainland, um, and then walked about 100 miles um, to Antioch, Pisidia. Uh, it was about a 3,500-foot climb. They're about 3,500 feet above sea level uh, by the time they got up there. And, um, and each of these places, what they found was that there was an eager reception to the message that led very quickly to an eager rejection of the messengers. So they would come and they would share the gospel, and they would often start, if there was a a synagogue in town, a a Jewish place of worship, that's where they'd start. They had a common language with the the Jews, they had a common starting point, and so they would go into the the synagogues, they would share the gospel, and then um, what happened in in Antioch is is, um, the Jews became jealous of the crowds that were gathering um, and threatened by the message they were preaching. And so they stirred up the influential Gentile leaders of the city against them. And so they ended up leaving um, Antioch and heading over to Iconium. Iconium was about 100 miles east of Antioch. Um, and that's where our text in, picked up today. Um, when they get here, we see again a very familiar pattern. They arrive and they go to the synagogue. They start sharing the gospel, and um, and they get a, a cautious but e- cautious greeting with with a lot of eager questions. Um, some soften at the preaching of the gospel. Some harden. Some become believers. Some become threatened and angry. And um, and again, the Jewish leaders conspired to get rid of them. The cl- the crowds they were gathering uh, made them jealous. The the message they were preaching threatened their authority and their influence in the c- the city. And so they conspired with Gentile leaders and actually at this point planned to execute them. They tried to get together a plan to stone them, which was a fairly common way of of mob murder. It was it was a way of a city coming together to basically execute someone. They heard about it. And so when they heard, they left. They went to Lystra, which was about 20 miles southwest of Iconium, and uh, started sharing the gospel in Lystra. Now, Lystra was unique at this point because there was no synagogue in Lystra. They couldn't start with a Jewish audience. So when they showed up, they just started preaching the gospel. Now, I want you to kind of get your head around what a challenge this is because at this period of time, uh, politically, this whole area was under Roman rule, there was the, the, the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome that had created a safe space for them to travel in. Gr- culturally, it was Greek. So everyone, the, the, the common language was Greek. Very much like today, if you're traveling around the world, English is pretty much the universal language um, of business and, and of commerce. Um, in this period of time, it was Greek. And so they would show up and they would start speaking Greek and sharing the gospel. The challenge is they're talking about Jesus. All right, now, 
Jesus, the story of Jesus, there's a lot of moving parts to that, right? When I say Jesus, we already have a concept in our head of what we mean, right? He's the guy that was born in the manger, right? We know theologically, Scripture tells us he was actually God incarnate, right? That God sent his son uh, to become human, that he might live the life we should have lived and die the death we deserve to die and rise again on our behalf, showing that God was satisfied in regard to our sin, right? And, and that there's one God made up of three persons, right? One what, three who's, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're monotheistic, but, but there's three co-equal persons that make up one, right? Can you imagine how difficult this is to explain in this context? Because the, the, the people in, in, in um, the, the Lyconians were, were polytheistic. They had no concept of monotheism. They had no concept of a single God, right? Every region had a God. Every commerce had a God. Every river had a God. Every, every cultural movement had a God, right? They believed in lots of gods, and, and our God would fight with your God, and your God would fight with our God, and, and sometimes the gods would become men, right? Sometimes they would come and walk among us because um, for whatever, there was lots of stories, right? Their gods were, were very interesting because their gods were created in the image of man. And so their gods had the same human passions. Um, so it wasn't uncommon for a god to become man so that he could romance a woman or, or some other craziness, right? So they're coming in, they're talking about monotheism, they're talking about a, a, a god becoming man, dying in their place, rising again so that they could be forgiven, the creator of heaven and earth, these are all concepts that are foreign to their audience. So what ends up happening is they're sharing the gospel. They're teaching these things, but the hearers are hearing it through the filter of their own understanding. They're, they're hearing it through their understanding of polytheism. They're hearing it through their understanding of culture. They're hearing it through their understanding. And, and what ends up happening? While Paul is preaching, he looks out and he sees a guy who's been lame, can't walk, <clears throat> and um, and and the Spirit gives him insight. He sees that the man has faith, that he's actually listening to the message and is responding in faith. Um, and so Paul's like, dude, get up and walk. The guy gets up and walks. Not unusual at this point in Acts. The apostles have performed miracles like this previously. They would be preaching the message of the gospel. They would do this miraculous power thing. And then the power would prove that the message was true, right? So they're speaking of the power of God, then they would act in the power of God, and the hearers would, would be like, wow, we really do see a demonstration. It's a, it's a message of power. It's a demonstration of power. The problem is it's completely misunderstood in this context. So, so Paul heals the guy that's lame, and they're all like, only gods can heal people, so they must be gods, right? So Barnabas must be Zeus, and Paul must be Hermes because he talks so much. And, and, and what do they do? They're like, well, what do you do when gods come and visit? You worship. So they go to the temple of Zeus and they're like, stop worshiping there. He's in town. He's here, right? Get, get the bull. And they're, they're speaking in, in Lyconian. Paul and Barnabas don't understand it. All they hear is excitement and gibberish. And they're like, what? What? What's going on until they see the priest marching down with this big parade of all this stuff and a sacrifice coming that it dawns on them that these guys are getting ready to sacrifice animals to them, to treat them as gods. Now, from their perspective, Lyconian's perspective, man, when a god visits your city, that's generally a pretty good sign, right? If he doesn't show up judging and destroying. If he shows up and he's speaking friendly words and people are getting up and walking, that generally means that God's happy with you. He's here to bless. He's here to, to fulfill your desires. He is here to, to, to help you be a success, right? So they're all excited. I mean, what great news. Hermes and, 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 uh, and Zeus are, are actually here. Paul and Barnabas, as soon as they figure out what's going on, man, they just start pleading with them. Now the crowd is loud, it's 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 raucous, it's movement, it's excitement, and they're just crying out. In fact, it says they tear their garments trying to get, which was a, a Jewish sign of, dis, of 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 sorrow, right? They tear their garments. They're like, no, don't do this thing, right? Two chapters ago, Herod was struck dead because he robbed God of his glory. I think they might be a little bit nervous, right? They don't they don't want to be worshipped, right? That's not the company they want to keep. And so they're pleading with them and, and they convince them. 
not to sacrifice. Barely, right? Barely. Verse 18, um, they, they convince them, don't do this thing. Verse 19, they, they try to kill Paul. They get upset. They get angry. They're incited against them. So they stone him. This time they actually get a hold of him. Now, stoning was a, a brutal way to go. They would take very large rocks. They would circle the guy. They would throw rocks, um, and, and it would crush bones, create all kinds of internal injuries, potentially crush your skull. And then they would drag you outside of the city and let you bleed to death because you're dead. And so they stone Paul. They drag him outside of the city, and they leave him in the sun, which is in that culture, <laughs> as well as ours, a very disrespectful way of dealing with the dead. It was a way of, of not just adding insult to injury. You know, this idea that, that um, once you went to the afterlife, you would have to live with the, the disgrace of a, of a defiled body. And um, so the disciples come out of hiding, um, and, uh, and they come to get Paul, and Paul gets up. I don't know if it's miraculous. We we're not told if it's miraculous or if he's just really tough. Um, I think that obviously God's hand of protection is on this guy. And, uh, and it's, it's just Luke's very, very clear, very simple. He's like, he gets up and he goes back into the city and the next day they leave. Uh, and, and they head down to Derby. Now, if he was healed miraculously, then down in Derby, he was, he was up and running and preaching the gospel. If, if he was walking wounded, which I think is a little bit closer to reality, he probably was laid up for a little while in Derby healing, like just allowing. But they weren't stopping. They continued to preach the gospel in Derby, and, and there were many people who became believers in Derby. Now, once they're in Derby, one, one thing that's interesting is at this point on the map, they're only about 100 miles away from Tarsus. Now, Tarsus, if you remember, is where Paul comes from. That's his hometown. And it's downhill, <laughs> right? They're up in the elevation. It's downhill. It would have been a fairly easy walk, a fairly safe journey down to Tarsus where they could have healed and, and recouped. And then it would, would have been about a Tuesday, two days journey from Tarsus over to Antioch. And, and hey, we'll call it a success. But that's not what they do. They turn around and they go back to all the cities they were already in. He goes back to all the cities. Now, remember, every single one of those cities, he was either threatened or actually stoned, <laughs> right? But he's going back to each one of those cities, and the text tells us it's because they went to teach them, to invest in them, to care for them, and to appoint elders in each one of the churches. So they planted churches. They started churches in each one of these communities, and then they went back through those communities to, to help ground them um, and, and to appoint local leadership. I mean, that's crazy, right? I mean, Paul just got stoned. These guys have had a, an incredibly difficult journey. They have suffered a lot, and yet they go right back through the same pattern to the same cities. And the only thing that really explains this is, is Paul's heart for the church. I mean, Paul just loved these churches. These churches were his children. He, he wasn't doing this for boasting. He wasn't doing this because... It was his job. He was doing this because he loved the gospel and he loved the people who were believing the gospel. And, and, when, and when these churches were formed, they were like his kids. And if you're a parent, you know, right? You're going to suffer for your kids, right? Because that's what you do, right? You sacrifice sleep. You sacrifice sanity. You sacrifice any hope for financial security. You're, you, that's what you do, right? And, and what we see him doing is sacrificing for his kids, he travels back through those towns to make sure they're encouraged, that they're strengthened, that they're grounded, and that they have godly leadership over the churches. Um, and then eventually he sails back across the Mediterranean Sea to Antioch. Now, what's interesting is, is a lot of you probably in the news have um, heard of the Syrian refugee problem and the Syrians um, being, in many cases, driven out of their homes and having to take to boats. Um, they've been thousands of lives lost in the Mediterranean Sea. It's in the same exact area. Um, now, they might be leaving from different places, but, but the, the people Paul was laboring to reach were, were geographically and ethnically the same people um, historically that are, that are in these same waters. So it was a treacherous journey. It was a dangerous journey for Paul. He arrives back in Antioch, 
and uh, and they share the they they share the good news, and everybody celebrates. All right, so that's kind of the summary of where we're at in um, in this journey. Okay, so I think we're left with a compelling question um, looking at this, and that is this: How do you explain? this dramatic turn that takes place right in the middle of this chapter where they go from worship to murder, right? I mean, they, they literally turn on a dime. In one verse, they are fighting Paul and Barnabas to try to worship them. And in the next verse, they're fighting Paul and Barnabas to try to murder them. What's the only thing that explains that? I would say existential disappointment. They had God-sized desires that were not fulfilled. And that created God-sized disappointment. And in God-sized disappointment, they are left with despair and anger and violence. They wanted Paul and Barnabas to be gods. And when they weren't, they were angry. They were disappointed. They were, they were deeply, deeply um, disappointed and, and, and left angry, right? Now, it wasn't Paul and Barnabas' fault. Paul and Barnabas never showed up and said, hey, we're gods, right? They didn't do that. That was their misunderstanding. But, but when people are angry, when people are confused, when people are hurt, they generally don't want to be confused by truth. They want to act out. They want to express their disappointment. They want to, they want to express their pain. And that usually is an attacking, a common enemy in this case, became Paul and Barnabas. All right, so here's where I want to go with this, is this. God's in the business of tearing down idols. That's what God does. God tears down idols. And when he does, um, it can have really terrifying effects for the people who worship those idols. The gospel is the hammer that strikes the foundation of, of idolatrous worship. And it becomes incredibly threatening to those who want to protect their idols. So let's take a little bit of time and unpack what I mean by idols and, and what I mean by this process. First of all, what is an idol? Now, an idol is not a statue that we would associate with ancient paganism. Um, an idol is something that we turn to instead of God to do for us what only God can do, to be for us what only God can be. Okay? And so... There were physical idols in, in this part of the world during this period of time, um, but those physical idols were representative of, of um, greater forces, right? And the reality is, is even though we don't have those physical idols, um, we still struggle with idolatry today, right? We may not look to an idol, but we still look to something, right? To do for us what only God can do, to be for us what only... God can be. It can be something that we think makes us important or something that makes us secure or something that makes us loved or, or something that makes us um, great, right? We're, we're looking to things to do for us what only God can do. They are things that we turn to and we worship. Now, to worship means to pour yourself out, to, to assign ultimate worth to something and pour yourself out to it. We're continually worshiping. God designed us to be continual worshipers. You're continually pouring yourself out to something. And when you pour yourself out to it, you expect something in return. So you identify what you think is worthy of being poured out to, and you expect it to give you a return on the investment, right? And these are things that, that a lot of times um, we can identify like, oh man, that guy's got a real idle problem. Like, like somebody who's um, maybe, maybe uh, addictive behaviors, right? A lot of times fairly easy to, like somebody who's a binge drinker. And they're always binge drinking, and, and every weekend they're like, they're like, oh, man, I'm going to party this weekend, which is really a funny way to describe it because there's not a lot of partying going on. There's a lot of misery. That's what I see. And, and, and what ends up happening is, is they just drink to the point of, of being beyond um, uh, comprehension, and then they suffer for the next 24 hours with nausea and pain, and, and, and then they're like, yeah, I can't wait to do that again. And we're like, okay, there's something wrong with that right? There's something that doesn't make a lot of sense about that. That thing that you call partying, I don't think it is what you think it is, right? That thing that you call fun, I don't think it's as fun as you're saying it is. You look pretty miserable to me. And you keep running back and it looks even more miserable every time you do it, right? Uh, people that are addicted to, to sex, 
um, or to pornography. Or we look at those things and we're like, see, you turn to bad things, right? And, and that's why they're bad. What you need to realize is that an idol is not something that's bad. It's something that's good. It's a good thing that we try to turn into an ultimate thing, right? Sex isn't bad. But when we try to find our fulfillment from it, to find our identity rooted in it, to find our, our, man, this is what makes me worthwhile, this is what makes me important, this is what makes me loved, then it becomes a very destructive thing. It's a good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing, right? Alcohol, right? I believe that, that, that alcohol can be a good gift, right? Scripture says that God gave us wine to make the heart merry. But when we turn to alcohol to do for us what only God can do, when we put God weight on it and we keep turning to it, well, this is what's going to make me happy. This is what's going to bring me comfort. This is what's going to, to help me overcome my insecurities and help me be the person I want to be. Then it becomes a bad thing, right? Because we take a good thing and we try to turn it into an ultimate thing. We take a gift from God and we put God weight on it. So idols aren't evil things, they're good things that we ultimately turn into ultimate things. Which means, ironically, I believe we're all polytheists, very much like the Lyconians. We all have lots of little gods in our lives. We all have things that we look to that are they're going to make us important or make us secure or, 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 or to bring us ultimate pleasure. We keep pouring ourselves out to things that aren't God looking to them to do for us what only God can do. Now, the Gentiles um, were polytheistic, and the Jews of that era would have looked at them with a certain level of disgust because they saw them in their temples and they saw them doing their pagan stuff, and, and, and that disgusted them. They were monotheists. The Jews believed in a one God, the creator of heaven and earth, and they believed in, in worshiping that God with a certain level of, of moral behavior, that there was, in fact, a, a standard of behavior, right? There was a law to follow. And so it was self-control, and it was discipline, and it was moral behavior. What's interesting, though, is that in their morality, they also became idolaters. They poured themselves out to their worship of God instead of to the God of their worship. They started making themselves important by, by what they did and didn't do. They started feeling superior to people who weren't as moral as them or self-controlled or as religious as them, and they felt condemning toward people who weren't um, uh, as good. That pride reveals the heart of their idolatry. It wasn't that they wanted to draw near to God. They wanted to draw near to their worship of God because that's what made them important in their culture. That's what marked them out. Here's the thing, you guys. We were created to feast on the presence of God, right? When we look at, at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve is, 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 is compelling because they were created to, to not only love one another, they were created to love each other. They were created to be productive. They were given a job. They were given the gift of culture, right? God put them in a garden, which is a cultivated wild space, the gift of culture. And they were told to cultivate that culture and expand it, right? So they were to be productive and artistic and scientific, and they were to be relational, loving one another, but they weren't to find their ultimate identity or security or worth in those activities. They found their deepest needs met in their relationship with God, which freed them to enjoy the gifts of God instead of use the gifts of God to, to make them worthwhile. Theologians call Genesis 1 and 2 that period the period of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that, that means peace, but it means a lot more than just a lack of conflict. It means a flourishing of life. During this period of time, they were feasting on the presence of God. They were feasting on the flourishing of life. And in that feast, what it did is, is it allowed them to have their deepest needs met in their relationship with God, which allowed them to enjoy the gifts of God without trying to turn those things into God. They can enjoy their relationship with one another without having to compete for glory or for space. They can enjoy their relationship with their job without having to mark their identity by how successful they were. They could, they could enjoy the, the creative aspects of life without trying to make their worth associated with their creativity. The theologian John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. The human heart is an idol factory. What that means is that we produce idols nonstop. And as soon as you tear down one idol, another 
idol rises up to take its place because idols are our way of trying to find shalom without the presence of God. Because when sin came in, it separated us from the presence of God. It separated us from the experience of shalom. But while we were separated from it, it didn't stop our appetite for it. We still crave it. We crave the presence of God. We, we crave the shalom of God. But we can't get it because we're separated from God by our sin. So we try to find um, that appetite fed in everything that can't feed it. So we look to the gifts of God instead of God to feed the appetite for the presence of God. So we tear down idols and we replace them with others. Jeremiah put it this way. Let me put up these verses. This is Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 13, describing um, God is prophetically describing the nation of Israel, but really, I think, speaking about His people um, and our tendency, our natural tendency. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. My people have committed two sins against me. The first is they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. God describes himself as this fountain of living water. What he's saying is is you have a thirst. You have a deep thirst, a deep need that is only fed by living water. Right? Not just normal water, not the kind that just hydrates your body and you have to keep drinking it, but, but the actual outflowing of the love and the presence of God. It is, it is like water, right? And as necessary as water is to your body, the presence of God is necessary to your soul. He is the fountain of living water. It never stops flowing. It never stops bubbling up. It never stops satisfying. It never stops feeding. This is the fountain that when you drink from it, you you are filled. And the more you drink, you never become like like overfull. The more you drink, the more delightful it becomes. It is a fountain that is bubbling up with the, the good stuff of life, the shalom of God, life in all of its fullness, life in all of its joy, life in all of its purpose. I am the fountain of living water, but you've forsaken me. You've stopped coming to me to get a drink. You've stopped coming into my presence to experience shalom. And instead, you've hewed out for yourself cisterns. Now, in the ancient Near East, cisterns were incredibly important because a lot of it was arid desert land. And during the rainy season, it was important that you had cisterns. Cisterns were these these, um, holes that you would dig in the ground that were essentially designed to capture rainwater that you could funnel water into, and it would become a holding place for water during the dry season, right? Some of these cisterns, I mean, you can think about a little hole in the ground, but some of these cisterns were like underground palaces, like huge and, 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 and decorated, like you could physically go down into them and they were decorated and, and, and the more wealthy you were, the, probably the larger uh, cavernous cistern type structure you would have. What God is saying is instead of coming to the fountain of living water, you dig for yourself these holes and they're broken. So they leak. Now, if you think about the way that plays out, what that means is when you first come to the cistern, there's water in it. You get a drink. So when you first come to your idol, it satisfies something. There's a pleasure there. There's a reward there. But whatever it is you came for gives you diminishing returns because every time you come back, there's less there. Until in the end, you're sucking on the mud. I mean, that describes our lives so well. It's like the guy who um, gets a job that makes him feel important and he gets kudos, right? People are like heaping praise on him and he like actually gets a business card. You know what I'm saying? Like it's your name and your title, right? It's like your first time you actually, it's not just like, okay, I do this job, but I actually have this position. You know what I'm saying? And when you have that position, suddenly it's like, oh, people are asking me questions because I'm the subject expert. You know what I'm saying? Like people want to re- talk to me and, and people are calling me in and, and I'm important to this organization. And, and, and you, start, you start thinking, man, I'm, I'm really something, right? And so you start feeding off that. I'm important because... And so, whereas you were slightly interested in work before, now you become really interested in work. 
right? You poured yourself out to it a little bit before, but now you really start pouring yourself out to it because you liked that drink. You liked feeling significant. You liked feeling important. But every time you come back to that well, it's a little bit lower and a little bit lower until in the end, you've sacrificed your family. You've sacrificed your joy. You've sacrificed everything that makes life worth living in order to make a living. All in the name of making yourself great. You end up with a corner office. You end up with a nice car. You end up with prestige. You end up with people that admire you from a distance. And your life's bankrupt. You're sucking on the mud. I mean, we see that play out over and over again. People destroy their lives in the pursuit of the perfect life. We sacrifice um, what we're truly pursuing in the name of pursuing it because it's a broken cistern. It can't satisfy the need that we're trying to satisfy, right? People do this with, with exercise, right? They discover the great gift of exercise. Right now, it's a big fad, right? Everybody's into CrossFit or hot yoga or, or working out or whatever it is, right? And so you discover how great it is, and, and all of a sudden, you start feeling better. It's like, I actually feel healthier. I'm eating better. I'm exercising more. I have more energy. My brain is sharper, right? And then you keep pushing that out, and eventually, they're making themselves miserable, right? They're working, working, working more and more and more, restricting their diet more and more and more. Why? Because we've got to cut more body fat and we've got to be in better shape and we got to, and in the pursuit of having a healthy, vibrant, joyful life, they're making themselves miserable. People do it all the time with, with um, man, we do it with our kids. Our culture, our culture is more obsessed with children than any culture, I think, in human history. We, we, we pretty much worship our kids, right? We are obsessed with their education. We are obsessed with their diet. We are obsessed with their health. We are obsessed with their opportunities. We want to make sure they have the best of everything, right? We want to make sure they have all the opportunities we didn't have. And our kids are more miserable than they've ever been. I mean, really, they're, they're just unhappy. And we get mad. We're like, don't you know how much I sacrificed for you? Be happy! Because in the end, it's not really about their happiness. Let's be honest, it's about ours. We pour ourselves out to our kids because we find our significance in their success. We want them to be great because by extension, that means we're great. And in our culture, that's what's celebrated, that's what's valued. And so we pour ourselves out. We want, we want the best-looking kids. We want a Pinterest perfect. We want the best-acting kids. I want the best performing kids, right? My kid's an honor student. Well, I guess my kid's not an honor student. My kid beat up your honor student, right? It's going to be the best at something, right? My kid's going to be the best at something because that's how we find our significance. And we put God weight on the gifts that God has given us and our kids die under the weight of our expectations, And in all of our effort to make them a success, all we're doing is driving home how much of a failure they are because they could never live up to our expectations. Those of you who are foodies, you love food. (laughs) And in your delight of food, you actually lose your ability to enjoy food. You eat more and more food and you enjoy it less and less. You got to find the newest, most organic, most single-sourced, most, I don't know, whatever, right? Because everything else has already been had. And so in your pursuit of more and more, you delight less and less. We take good things and we destroy them by making ultimate things. And in our pursuit of pleasure, we look to those pleasures and we say to them, you're what's going to make me happy. You're what's going to delight my soul. You're what's going to feed me. And, and, and that first time you come to the cistern, it is delightful. And the next time you come, it's still good, but not quite as good. And you keep coming until you're just sucking on mud, but you're still shoving your head in the hole because you don't know where else to go and you don't know what else to do. And you go from anticipation to fulfillment to disappointment. 
And pretty soon there's more and more disappointment and less and less anticipation and no fulfillment. That's existential despair. And we live our life for the next. The next vacation. And the next vacation, that's the one that'll be good. That last one sucked. (laughs) The next vacation, that's going to be good. The next promotion. The next job change. The next relationship. The next career. The next husband. The next. And we just go. Trying to find something else to anticipate because we can't live with the weight of our disappointment. The next video game, the next Netflix series. How many of you are binge watching a Netflix series you've already watched like 12 times? Because you're just waiting for the next one to come out, right? And each time you're like, oh, this was great. Was, was great, right? You guys, this is us. So listen to me. God wants to deliver us from our idols. The fountain of living waters wants us feasting on his presence, not sucking on the mud. And he only is going to do that by redirecting our affections. See, God's going to expose our idols as powerless. And he's going to invite us to rest in his presence, in his power, and delight in his glory. And two things are going to happen here. One is really, really unpleasant, and the other is awesome. So the first thing that's going to happen that's really, really unpleasant is God's going to crush your idol. And you're not going to like it because you love your idol. You pour yourself out to your idol, right? To, to your distraction, to your entertainment, to your career, to, to, your, to your relationship, to your family, to your, you pour yourself out to it because that's where you find your identity. And when God crushes it, it's going to feel like he's crushing you. When he crushes your source of significance, you're going to feel like you are insignificant. When he crushes your your source of approval, you're going to feel completely rejected. When when he crushes your idol, there is going to be a moment of confusion and hurt and fear. And if you're anything like me, you're probably going to at times fight to protect your idol from God. And then you're going to get really, really mad at God because he's not playing by your rules, and he's not giving you what you want. You got your broken cistern. You just want a little water in it. God, will you just put some water in the cistern? Will you just give me my next promotion? Will you just make my kids happy? Will you just make this happen? Will you just make that happen? Will you just please put some more water in my broken cistern? And we get mad at God because he's not playing by our rules. And the whole time he's saying, I'm the fountain of living water. Will you turn around and come back? So when he crushes our idols, it's going to be hard because it feels like death. But what you need to realize is what's dying is your sin. What's dying is your sinful independence from God, your sinful defiance against God, your sinful determination to find pleasure outside of God. But he has to kill that to reunite you with the source of life. Because as as long as you're drinking from your sister and you're not going back to the fountain. And that's the delightful piece, you guys. God is absolutely determined to crush your idols. You know why? Because it robs him of his glory and it robs you of your joy. And God is determined to make sure both are honored. God wants his glory because he is the the all-gloriful, glorious, all-gloriful, all-glorious being. He is the omnipotent creator of all things. He is the source of all beauty. He He is all that is great. And he wants his glory to shine because it's in his glory that we find our deepest delight fulfilled. Our deepest desires awakened and satisfied. Our deepest joy experienced. So how does God do that? How does God crush our idols? Through life circumstances. Through suffering. God will let us fail. God will let your job fail. God will let your kids fail. God will crush your idols. But while he's crushing your idols, he will never stop inviting you to the fountain. Never. He is a loving father who is pouring out his love to you. 
continually inviting you to simply receive his love because it's in being loved by God that we find our deepest needs met. It's in embracing that we have a heavenly Father who sent His Son to die in our place and rise again so that we could be brought back to the table of grace to feast in the presence of God. The invitation never expires. The fountain never stops flowing. And it's in having our vision filled with the love of God that our hearts are reawakened to our desire for God. And as our hearts are, are reawakened for the desire for God, we come to really have a distaste for our idols. And even though it hurts, we often will then come and actually lay our idols on the altar and say to God, will you use the hammer of the gospel to please crush this desire within me that I might be free to love you and free to honor the gifts you've given me instead of putting God weight on them? That's when a parent starts praying God, I give my kids to you. Do whatever you need to do in their lives to turn their hearts to you, which is a very brave prayer. Do whatever you need to do in my child's life to turn their heart to you that they might be free to love you and respond to you. That's a prayer of faith in God, not a prayer of control, saying I have to control their environment. I have to protect their experience. That's when we can come to God and say, Lord, I don't know if I'm supposed to have this, this promotion or not. Lord, if it's not your will, will you pass over me? Will you leave me in the position I'm in right now? If it's not your will, will you let me just labor faithfully where I am instead of continually lusting for where I'm not? See, faith awakens within us. As we taste deeply of the love of God, we come to trust deeply in the power of God. And as we do, we are freed from the power of our idols. And we start to experience something that the idols could never give us. Joy. Deep, powerful joy. You guys, I'm going to put some questions up on the screen. I'm going to have you pray and, um, I don't know, let God speak to your heart. We're going to share communion in a moment. Um, we're going to introduce that. But let me pray for us, and we'll go into a time of response. Father, I thank you that you are a patient Father who continually invites us back. That even though we have lied in our hearts about you <laughs> and said that you're not as delightful as you actually are, you're not as powerful as you actually are, you're not as glorious as you actually are, even though we continually look to things that aren't you, to be for us what only you can be and to do for us what only you can do. Lord, you still love us. You still invite us. You still pursue us. Love, Lord, I pray that that love would break our hearts and that in the breaking, we might learn what it means to drink deeply at the fountain of grace, to just be loved. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.